breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to another episode this week, the first episode in 2020 for Reform This. Thank you for joining me, and it's always a privilege to have your time and to be able to share with you the biggest stories on the front of reform, on the front in the war against jihad. And 2020, only four days in now, does not disappoint. And not only does it not disappoint, ladies and gentlemen, we have probably had one of the biggest changes and shifts in power structures human power structures that we've seen with one simple act of the U.S. military. We'll get into that in a second. I hope you all had a blessed Christmas holiday, New Year's holiday. Thanks for giving me a break last week. Sorry, uh, uh, we had, I think it was one of our first weeks without a, without a podcast in over a year. But again, I hope you had time with your family, all your prayers, come true, be heard, and may you be blessed, healthy, and prosperous into the new year. To all my Christian friends, may you have had a blessed Christmas. To all my Jewish friends, may your Hanukkah have been a day, days of joy, gratitude, and in the spirit in which the holiday was remembered. So, in 2020, we know it's going to be a good year. So much rancor in Washington, so much division, so much extremism in politics, in discourse, and on social media. But on this podcast, we discuss the ideas of Islamic reform, the fronts that you can look at that you might be missing if you only pay attention to the swamp or to the obsessed media that focuses on all things that are Trump, all things that are Congress and Pelosi and other politics of the day and miss some of the huge tectonic shifts that are happening in society. And in this program, for those of you who are new, your humble correspondent, Dr. Zudi Jazzer, looks at the areas of reform as not only a concerned American, but as a concerned Muslim who believes that while there's certainly generations of work to be done in looking at analyzing, developing a new school of Sharia, that's not going to happen in this generation. But what can happen is the defeat of political Islam is the end of the Islamic State concept and the end of political and armed jihad. And what do I mean by that? If you follow me week to week, if you follow me on social media, you'll know what we mean. And this week, it opened, remember, it opened this week with demonstrations, supposed demonstrations that were happening in front of the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. And that embassy was ransacked. Americans were injured. And it was attacked. And it turned out that that was a coordinated, coordinated planned attack on the U.S. Embassy, Allah, 1979. 
thanks to the swift response of the U.S. military, the Trump administration, State Department Secretary Pompeo, there were minimal injuries and no loss of life. And I want to talk about that for a few minutes, but just to sort of set the trajectory for you about where we're going in this conversation. For the last few weeks, we had a ramping up. Remember, there was the death of an American contractor, injury of others. Americans were attacked. It was a coordinated attack by a terrorist group that was clearly felt to be directed by Soleimani. General Soleimani and the Quds forces at an American. President Trump responded swiftly with a rocket attack on Iranian assets, including the IRGC assets. And then this week happened. What happened after the American attack? Response, which I still feel is categorized as defensive after we had loss of life. President Trump had for a long time reminded them that there would never be silence in response to terror, in response to attacks upon our people, upon our assets. And he responded as he promised he would. So then they upped the ante. They respond with up the ante, which includes massive demonstrations in Baghdad against our American embassy. Now, the really massive demonstrations have been going on for months in Iraq, at Baghdad, and Iran, and Tehran, and Qom, and elsewhere, and in Lebanon and Beirut. Those are massive grassroots demonstrations of people that were sick and tired of the corruption and the control coming from the malocracy, the mullahs controlling their government, making Iraq and Lebanon into client states and Syria into client states of their theocracy, turning it, in, turning it into draconian Sharia states that have nothing to do with their nations, of their sovereign nations, being Iraq and Lebanon and Syria. Those are the real demonstrations. But then... After the American response to the death of our contractors, they hold a rent-a-mob, classic, classic Middle Eastern dictator strategy. A rent-a-mob then starts pummeling and trying to destroy the American embassy, one of the largest, if not the largest embassy in the world, fortified, obviously the most of any, with a security corridor in the world. But yet... The attacks coming from people with weapons, with, with uh, things being thrown at personnel, needed a deployment of Marines to protect the embassy. And it was done swiftly, and they did protect the embassy. And then you look at the media here, and the narrative coming from legacy media, CNN, MSNBC, and elsewhere was, was the Trump administration's response an escalation? Did this then cause more demonstrations? And they showed the demonstrations as they have done under the Obama administration, which is to show not the people's demonstrations in mass on our television. No, they only show the governmental stage demonstrations. And that, that's what this was. This was a la 1979 all over again without the hostages and with 
this time at beginning under a president like Reagan that would respond swiftly, and President Trump did. But make no mistake, this was not a grassroots demonstration. This was a mob. These were terrorists who were attacking our embassy, terrorists who were trying to kill our staff in a country that we are invited to be in, and the, and the Iraqi government allowed it to happen. The Iraqi government security forces turned a blind eye because they had become controlled by Tehran. That is the stage upon which what happened on January 2nd, 2020, the targeted killing of General Qasem Soleimani became so important. But that stage is important because it's amazing to me. I just want to pull my hair out as I watch media talk about the demonstrations in our embassy as if somehow the people were upset. The people were not upset with uh, America targeting the Quds forces, responding to the death of Americans. They wanted us to stay there. They were upset to see us leave. They were demonstrating against the Quds forces, against the IRGC, against the mullahs, against the Islamic Republic's control, against the chance of death to America and death to Israel. They wanted death to the Khomeinis. That's what was being chanted. Look at the videos, look at the social media, and realize that the only ones pushing the propaganda of the state are the Islamist tools of Khomeini. But it's weird how our media wanted to ignore that. Why? Because they are so anti-Trump obsessed that they choose to ignore people wanting to be free in order to advance a narrative that somehow it's America's fault. And yet, you look back at our last embassy that was attacked in Libya, and the narrative at that time, even though it took us however long to respond when we didn't, and then they blamed other things for happening, blamed the video, blamed whatever it might be, for a delay that ended up to the loss of our acting ambassador, in addition to three other heroes. And then there was a large investigation into what exactly happened. While the situations are obviously very different, the similarities have to do with the effectiveness of the response of a, of a strong, immediate response to one of appeasement. And I have to tell you, with as chaotic and as violent and as extreme as the forces that hate us are in the Middle East, you have to start, let's talk about the fact that do you defeat them and do you reform those who want democracy or some form of self-rule? Do you advance that by coddling them, allowing them to, allowing us to then sort of coddle their dictators and tyrants or do we lay down the line and forcefully hold their governments accountable to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and norms of the Geneva Convention and against terrorism. So then I remind you how we spoke last year on one of the podcasts here about the fact that it was very appropriate. I think one of the pivotal decisions made last year was the declaration of the IRGC, the Iranian Republican Guard Corps, and its foreign operation, operating arms in Iraq and Lebanon under the arms, under the name of the Quds forces, Quds being Jerusalem, 
the Quds forces, led by General Soleimani. General Soleimani has been a, a, a filthy, megalomaniacal, genocidal, fascistic terrorist who has run a network of terror that runs through, out of Tehran, as one of the leading, most influential military generals. Tehran, they say some he's basically second in command, almost like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, if you will. And he ran the foreign operations that included terror in Yemen, terror against the Saudis, terror against Gulf states, terror against Lebanese, aiding Hassan Nasrullah, the head of Hezbollah, aiding Bashar Assad in his genocide networks for decades, decades that made Iran and made Soleimani into a threat that provided evil, that dwarfed the evil of Imam Awlaki, Osama bin Laden, and Sheikh Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS. Why? Well, certainly those organizations, terrorist organizations, might be more disorganized, chaotic, and radical Islamist or Salafi jihadist, if you will, from the Sunni side. But they didn't have anywhere near the financing, not a state military that's organized, protected in many ways by a UN that had to give them uh, uh, sovereign respect. Treasury of billions upon billions, despite sanctions still with billions that they bled and sucked from their people. This is what made Soleimani the most dangerous terrorist on the planet. He's been profiled not only by conservative outlets, but the New Yorker, New York Times, and others. 2013, the New Yorker called him the shadow commander, the influence of the most militant controller of foreign Iranian terror operations on the planet. In 2013, Dexter Filkins in the New Yorker said, Qasem Soleimani is the Iranian operative who has been reshaping the Middle East. Now he's directing Assad's war in Syria. That's the headline. And it goes into how his network of mosques and Hezbollah and Quds forces and others provided a network of operations that propped up Assad and prevented, prevented the civil war from ever taking shape. This is why this week, after these demonstrations at our embassy, the DOD, Department of Defense, all of a sudden we started to hear news reports in the evening of January 2nd, 2020, that Qasem Soleimani had been targeted and killed in an operation that appeared to have been done by the United States, And a few hours later, the DOD not only took credit for it, announced that that was its plan and strategy in order to prevent what it felt was further plans by Soleimani to commit further acts of terror against the United States, our assets, our citizens, and our lives. Soleimani's reputation is is beyond simply of a lead terrorist of an organization. This guy 
is an Islamist jihadist general that brought fear into those that even would think about questioning him. When you wonder how is it that brothers report on brothers, how the Mukhabarat or the intelligence services in Arabic end up being so effective, it's not only by the stories of reported torture of those who don't give up their money and their information to the government. It is by the persistent, defiant leadership in which their presidents, their their Islamic Supreme Council was protected by Soleimani and his generals. So this is the aura. Mike Pence laid it out good in a thread in which he said, Yesterday, President Trump took decisive action and stood up against the leading state sponsor of terror to take out an evil man who was responsible for killing thousands of Americans. Soleimani was a terrorist. He organized the attempted assassination of the Saudi ambassador to the U.S. in D.C. in 2011. He provided advanced deadly explosive form projectiles, advanced weaponry training and guidance to Iraqi insurgents, used to conduct attacks on U.S. and coalition forces responsible for the death of over 600 U.S. service members along with thousands of wounded. He directed sophisticated 2007 attack on the Provincial Joint Coordination Center in Karbala, Iraq, in which five captured U.S. soldiers were executed. In Afghanistan, Soleimani oversaw the IRGC's financial, logistical, and military support to the Taliban and sponsors' attacks on coalition forces. He provided missiles and other advanced weapon systems to throughout the Middle East, including Lebanese Hezbollah, Kataib Hezbollah in Iraq, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hamas, and the Taliban. And they used those weapons to target and kill innocents. He directed the IRGC Quds Forces terrorist plots to bomb innocent civilians in Turkey and Kenya in 11. Continues to support the murderous genocidal regime in Syria, aiding and abetting Assad's brutal abuses against the Syrian people. And as I told you, the New Yorker outlined how he was one of the main linchpins for strengthening Assad in 2013 and providing support. All the while, ISIS then began become being created and forming itself. So to say that he was anti-ISIS or he fought ISIS might be certain little skirmishes here or there, but Assad, Soleimani, and others played by the dictator's tyrannical playbook in which they allowed radical groups to grow in order to legitimize, legitimize military authoritarian rule that they used to wipe out moderates and carpet bomb neighborhoods and use chemical weapons in areas that were not full of ISIS. It only took the United States to end up getting rid of ISIS. When Assad had so much support militarily and otherwise, there were twenty to 50,000 IRGC troops fighting in Syria, protecting Assad's regime and doing his murdering for him. In Yemen, the Quds forces under Soleimani's leadership had orchestrated and enabled the launch of missiles that resulted in the deaths of dozens of people in the region. Targets have included civilian airports in Saudi Arabia. He assisted in clandestine travel of many terrorists who carried out the 9-11 attacks, 10 to 12 of them. Soleimani was plotting imminent attacks of American diplomats and military personnel in the next days. The world is safer with him gone.
And that was also the DOD statement, by the way, was that there were imminent attacks being planned on American assets. Now, some have said, oh, but that wasn't here. That was in the Middle East. So you'd like us to remove all our bases around the world? Is that what withdrawal means? And then do you think the world will be safer in a Gulf where there's no American bases, in a Africa where there's no American presence, in a Iraq with no embassy? We can pull out more troops. And that may be coming, ladies and gentlemen. They already announced this week that all our personnel need to evacuate to go home. I worry about a Middle East without American presence. I certainly agree. As you've known, I, as you know, if you follow this podcast, I am also of the opinion that it's no longer wise. The old, I guess it's called sort of the neoconservative approach, which is that somehow militarily we can help freedom evolve. That's not going to be a military solution. We need to protect ourselves. Our military is used to decimate terrorist assets, human assets, when they are planning attacks on our homeland. And that's what Soleimani did. That's what Awlaki, that's what bin Laden did. And we got them each time. But you need to understand what these forces are and why they need to be targeted. And then you saw some of the political ring, the hackery from the left that said that he should have, President Trump should have declared an authorization for the use of military force and notified Congress. You seriously think that somebody with a global rap sheet like Soleimani head of an organization that's already been formally designated a foreign terrorist organization, needs our commander-in-chief to get permission from Congress that that somehow becomes an act of war. The part, you know, I have to tell you that, that while a lot of this discussion, yeah, has been military and strategic so far on today's show, I think what's most amazing to the reformist aspect of this are two things. First, what are the will of the people? in Iraq and Iran and Lebanon and Syria. But secondly, most importantly, it was amazing to me how the media, when they talked about ISIS, the Islamists always would make them and taught them to say, don't say Islamic State, say the so-called Islamic State. And every speech from the UN said the so-called Islamic State that we come together to defeat. Okay, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the funniest thing was Washington Post then, upon the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, said the, in the headline called him the austere Islamic scholar. Austere Islamic cleric or scholar. So wait, I thought it was so-called Islamic State. And then on his death, he became austere. So I think at, at, as as offensive as that, headline was and the post was was uh, um, criticized was panned for that I think it finally showed their true colors that they did understand that he was a Muslim scholar and that he was a Salafi jihadi and he did represent a significant and lethal strain of the interpretation of Islam 
Now, the part that I've always said, and you've heard me say it on this program before, why don't we call the Islamic Republic of Iran the so-called Islamic Republic? Or the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, the so-called Islamic Republic, with blasphemy laws and torture laws and, and, and homophobic laws and other things that we see in Iran and Saudi Arabia and elsewhere? No, because those are sovereign states. We must give them the respect of a sovereign state. But a terror organization that calls itself an Islamic state, that is panned as being non-Islamic. This is the bigotry, is that Suleiman, you look at the headlines in the media the past few days, and you see that the media is saying, oh, but he was might have been dark, and yes, we're not shedding any tears, but this is going to be a provocation. This is the beginning of a war. This is yada, yada, yada. But no, handing... Handing $150 billion to the Iranians. Oh, it's their own money. We need to give it back. That doesn't fuel war. An unleashed genocidal general military of Iran and Syria that knows they will have no repercussions for using chemical weapons and elsewhere. That's not provocation for war. No, provocation is when we stand up for those who want to be free, when we kill those who are heading terrorist organizations that think they can kill our citizens and our contractors and attack our embassies wantonly. That's not a pro. That is not a provocation. That is defensive, and it is. it will make them blink again if they try it. And this is the rules. This is the, this is the way in which you win wars against thugs, against fascists, and against tribal warlords in the Middle East. Because I can tell you, for those of us from the area... My family's from Syria. You don't win wars by appeasement and turning a, a blind eye and using the UN, the feckless UN, to try to prevent chemical weapons that still are piled throughout Syria. Maybe 80% of it's gone, but the 10-20% he has left, he's still using. There's no doubt. There is little doubt in my mind that the... Uh, Suleimani posed a much more significant threat to the region, to terror networks, to stability in the region than any of the previous known terrorist figures that we talked about what would happen after they died. Iraqis were cheering in the street. Syrians are handing out sweets from house to house silently behind the scenes, thanking God that Soleimani is dead because he is a tyrannical, genocidal nutcase who ran a massive jihadi military that was killing Sunnis and Kurds and others as sport killed Shia that didn't believe in his rule and in his masters at the Islamic Supreme Council of Iran. And when the left can wake up and start calling them so-called Islamic and realizing that the problem of political Islam and militant Islamic jihadism is not limited to rogue groups, state, stateless actors like al-Shabaab and ISIS, it actually starts from the, the 
primary cancer cells of Salafi jihadi doctrine from the Sunni Wahhabi traditions of Saudi Arabia to the Salafi jihadi traditions of Islamism of Al-Azhar in Egypt to Diobandism and the Salafism of the Islamic Republic of Pakistan to the Shia side of the Khomeinis in Tehran and the militant arm of that jihad that this week, this week saw a shift. Yes, it's assassination of one, not assassination, it is the killing. That's funny. Bernie Sanders called it an assassination. And it's not an assassination, Bernie. This was a targeted killing by the U.S. military of a terrorist general. But that death did shift quite a bit. That death did shift, will shift sort of the makeup. We don't know where it's going to settle, but I think it'll change. You can't replace a Soleimani. It's not like a democracy where we can change a Secretary of Defense every year or two and he fits into the same position. We'll have personality differences, but we'll take up a network of those loyal to the country and to the Constitution. Soleimani had set up a mafia-esque type of jihadi, lethal network that navigated across the planet in Muslim-majority areas. And he was feared from areas from Thailand to America. This network will not be recreated, and it is quite impactful. Now, certainly the media is going to try to do their bizarre conspiracy theories. We see it with Ilhan Omar already, the Islamist Ilhan Omar, trying to say that somehow Trump did this because of motivations against impeachment and things like that. Complete hogwash. President Bush and President Obama significantly considered killing Qasem Soleimani but did not have the spine, especially Obama did not. President Bush probably should have, but again, this was just still during the the beginnings of the Iraq War. Talking about surge and other things, and there was, it probably did not seem right to then turn it into a war against Iran, if that's what it would appear like because we were already actively in an obvious war against Iraq, Saddam Hussein, and trying to liberate that country. But even with that, the concern about the reaction from Iran, what are they going to do, hate us more? What are they going to do? Try to commit acts of terror against ships? They're, they're doing that already. They don't need excuses. They will continue to do it anyway to try to keep us on the defense. But now they are on the defense. Now they've lost their almost godlike hero, Hitler-esque type of Shia Islamist militant of Soleimani. But for the Iranians, I'm certain that this will be a major fork in the road. Understand who he is. Understand that the vast majority of rational Muslims and non-Muslims from Syria to Iraq and Iran and Lebanon are cheering, passing out sweets on his death. 
because they realized he was responsible for the torture of most of their loved ones. The Quds forces were the death nail, the death nail of democracy from the Arab Spring. The hopes of freedom for the Iranian people have been crushed in his hands, and soon possibly Iraq was going to be, and Syria also was. Everybody really needs to understand the broader impact of what Soleimani had on the world and Iran's imperialistic terror that it sought throughout the world and trying to regain, and this is, I think, the biggest change and what I'll end on today. Iran's strategy was to recoalesce, bring together that Shia crescent. Remember, Shia are about 10% of the Muslim world. But they have majority in four major countries. Yemen, Lebanon, Iraq, and Iran. What they wanted to do was create a coalescence, if you will, of control from Iran. Of the countries that form a crescent from Iran to Iraq, to Syria, and to Lebanon, and to the Mediterranean. Yemen, sort of the outlier down there on the off the Nejd Peninsula of Saudi Arabia. Now that crescent was on its verge. Obama provided the the ushering in of the vacuum of the removal of American troops to allow them to slowly take over the political and governmental complex of Iraq's democracy which is now failing. And then in Lebanon, the prime minister had become irrelevant over the last five years as Iran took over control of that country and its political apparatus. So the demonstrations that came out, the demonstrations that came out over the last four to six months in Beirut, Baghdad, and Tehran were against Iranian control. So they were losing, they were slipping in their control of that Shia crescent. And with America attack, we had to respond. We identified the IRGC as a terror organization, as an FTO, foreign terrorist organization, making them basically a non-state actor in which it every sanction possible could be implemented. And then when they attacked and we had warnings of prior, uh, of coming attacks, the head of that snake had to be removed and Soleimani was appropriately targeted and removed. And I think the testimony that wasn't talked about in media today and this week is imagine they start attacking our embassy, the Quds forces set up a raid a rent-a-mob that then also raids our embassy. And within a couple days, we have intelligence that they're going to attack even more. And we are able to target and kill General Soleimani. How many countries could do that? What type of deep intelligence operations do we have going on that we are able to effectuate the death of Soleimani within days? And thank God we didn't have to wait for congressional approval for that because we might have lost the window of opportunity because if you want to have an impact on affecting behavior as a deterrence, you do it swiftly and immediately after the crime. 
after the terror. The attack on our embassy was a terrorist act. It was, for all practical purposes, an act of war. Similar to Benghazi, but this time by state-sponsored Iranian Quds forces. And it's not just it's not just Soleimani that died. We believe there are a couple of his generals, like Mohandas, second in command, responsible for the Shia militias. But I still think, at the end of the day, it is the people of these countries that are cheering, that realize there are forces for good out there. No, the cavalry is not going to come back. The United States military will not have massive deployments. It's not our role to liberate their own countries. They need to do that themselves. But when they start, when the evil that attacks them starts using us, not only as a foil, but as they start attacking us because they realize that we are the greatest existential threat to their growth. This is why France, not France, this is why China and Russia, I I don't know why France also criticized our targeting of Soleimani, but China and Russia certainly did, and that's not a surprise. So, by the way, to all the, the, the truthers out there that consider the Trump administration to be a tool of Russia, why is Russia so upset? You think they're happy? You think Putin's happy that his man Soleimani, fellow thug, is gone? I don't think so. He's not happy about that. Neither is Assad. Nasrullah is probably changing his diapers right now in Hezbollah. And these are pro-Russian, close to the Russian military as they're fighting side by side in Syria. Assad's now wondering if Putin gets, gets tired of him, what's going to happen to him? Without Soleimani's network and, and leadership in Syria, Assad is going to struggle even more. This changes the, the, the lay of the land in that region. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves. So, to end, this American Muslim, this Syrian American Muslim, breathes a sigh of relief at the death of Qasem, General Qasem Soleimani. The world is safer, Americans are safer, the Middle East is safer. And the Iranian theocrats are one step closer to their grave in the end, the end of their regime as the Iranian people get another second wind. The Iraqi people will hopefully begin to take back their own government and the Lebanese and Syrian will do the same. This is Zudi Jasser. We'll be back with you next week on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.